You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, it's my very great pleasure to welcome Michael Morgan, Director of Nettleton Tribe Architects, to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Thanks, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Michael, we're going to get started a little bit later to discuss your award-winning Bruce McKenzie Landscape submission for the 2021 Think Brick Awards. But before we get started, I just wondered whether you could talk a little bit about your childhood and growing up. Thanks, Elizabeth. Well, I... Um Grew up as a young boy on the north side of the Spit Bridge in Seaforth and Balgower on the Manly area. My dad was a lighting engineer who had a business in Brookvale called Morelight. My mum was a stay-at-home mum and we just grew up in that sort of post-war new area of Sydney where everybody got to know everybody in the street and you played for the local footy club and did all those things that kids do. And it was lovely. It was just a very simple way of life in those days. But we had fascinating climate. You know, every summer we'd watch the bushfires start down by Manly Dam and hear the fire brigade come and the, saw the beginning of the RFS established in the northern beaches in those days. And I think it was interesting to see what that climate impact was even back in those days. Mm. And it's been around for so long as yeah. well. Yeah. Some people refer to that area of Sydney as God's country. Would yeah. you subscribe to that theory? Yeah, but it is interesting. You know, I crossed the Spit Bridge in 1985 and came to live down in Kirribilli. I'd lived in a range of places while I was going through uni, finished school in 73, went to uni in New South Wales straight away in 74. And so in the uni years, lived here, there and everywhere and did the you know traditional stint for a couple of years in Europe as a young budding architects did in those days. But having crossed the Spit Bridge in 1985, I thought it wouldn't be long to go back and I never been never went there. back. <laughs> um, Michael, just picking up, you obviously went to university. How did you sort of decide that architecture might be something for you? I guess in those days, Dad's business was putting commercial lighting into the new office buildings in the CBD. So buildings like Goldfield's House, the AMP, all those sorts of buildings were buildings that he was engaged with and working on. So there was a little bit, always a bit of talk around town, the meeting of, you know, he sold the business to Phillips in the mid-60s. So a bit of contact with the Dutch community. And of course, Woodson was just winning the, the Opera House Prize at the time. And Dad went on to actually have the opportunity to do the lighting in the Opera House. So oh, wow. those sort of influences made me think about, well, I guess I'd started drawing. You know, mm -hmm. I just had a natural instinct to draw and I enjoyed drawing. And as a very young boy, I remember, um, and I don't know why this is, I've got a small rural property now, but I would make farm in the garden. My grandmother lived next door. She had a beautiful vegetable garden in the backyard. So ever since I've been a parent, I've wanted to grow vegetables and do things like that. So I don't know whether that was just being in contact with the land mm. or just having an aspiration to see what you could bring from nothing, you know, and what you could create from nothing. Mm. So just climate influences, the necessity of water, water being the elixir of life and the, the life-giving energy that we need, and then the impact of what we do on the rest of the environment around us, I think. I started drawing one thing and I kept drawing. So I always had a passion to be an architect. 
Okay. And when you got to university, was that the sort of experience that you thought it would be? I'm probably a little bit of a critic of architectural education in that I think it's more a marathon than an education and a test of survival. I think it could be better structured so that more time to deep thinking could be provided and you find inspiration in the people you meet, not only in your peer group, but in those that you get to rub shoulders with. And in those days, we were very fortunate to have some great lecturers and tutors at Union New South Wales. People like Russell Jack, Bruce Rickard, some very interesting characters, a fellow called Faco Bowman who worked with Cole Madigan on the uh, Camp Big Canberra projects that he did. Later on, Harry Seidler, I had the opportunity to spend six months in Harry Seidler Design Studio in my final year. So great influences and great contacts, mm. but um, that's the inspiration part. Having the time to sit down and talk to them was like recovery. You know? mm-hmm. it was just that moment when you just needed to be reassured that there was a light at the end of the tunnel because you hadn't slept for two or three days, you know. And it, it's fascinating to me after interviewing the architects, just how diverse the experience is Mm. and what some sort of lecturers would do. A lot of our Perth architects, there was a particular lecturer there who used to send them literally out, you know, 200 kilometres into the desert or something. I think I've heard about that guy. I can't think of his name, but Uh, he's he's renowned. He's renowned. That was quite funny to hear that. But that's that getting in touch with nature, isn't Mm. it? And understanding the elements that you live around. You know, Rick Laplastria spent some time, he was mainly at Sydney, but occasionally would come to New South Wales for lecture in those days. Rick's approach to establishing context on a site was to go and camp on it for a week or so, you know. And so he understood before he put pen to paper what all the environmental influences around that site particularly were. Yes. You mentioned that you had some time working with Harry Seidler. What was that experience like for you? It was was fantastic. I mean, Harry is a man of clear principles and commitment to a design philosophy. So you learn a lot about his passion, his commitment, his philosophy. And then you also learned that you needed to form your own opinion as to how it might be applied. Harry said one day, the majority of society don't know what they like, so you just got to put something good in front of them and let them run into it. Pretty brutal statement. But of course, Harry's upbringing was in a world that was very brutal at the time, a little bit like what we're seeing in Eastern Europe today. So I think you can sympathise or understand and respect that commitment to the discipline he Mm. learned. But he also opened our eyes to things like Joseph Alba's exercises in human response to visual stimulants. Mm. And that was really, really interesting because it gave you the tools of proportion and design that you could rely upon. You could understand that an average person doesn't want to divide a straight line right down the middle. Yep. They'll pick a point to one side. And then the proportion that they pick on average is quite fascinating and takes you back to golden mean proportion and all those simple principles and design elements that are critical to comfort, human comfort mm. in the built environment. Because I think what I've noticed and even going through renovating a couple of times now, some people either have a clear vision or they don't, which rings true about you've got to put something in front of people that they mm, like. Mm. How is that? I mean, have you found that to be true going yeah. forward? Well, I think then you've got to find that the average person still can't decide. You know? Right, yes. Some, somebody in the commercial world will only be able to make a decision when given a choice mm-hmm. and you weigh up the pros and cons in the choice. So that's a typical banker's decision regarding a property investment. The general person in the street or the person has a passion to do something and to engage with a project will probably have to go through a process of understanding clearly what they don't like. Yes. 
And so that's where you do have to do multiple iterations and exploration of all the things they think, you know, they think could be a possibility. And that, yeah, that can be an exhaustive process. <laughs> you can feel like you're going round and round and round in circles. But at any point in time, there will be that enlightening moment when the epiphany occurs and everybody sits back and says, okay, now I understand where we're going. Yeah. Michael, so you finished uni and then you went overseas. Is that right? No, back in the 70s, the course was still broken in the middle. There was You had to have a year off campus. Right. And that year was meant to be six months travelling and exploring architecture and six months working. Okay. So I couldn't contemplate just six months travelling, but I decided I'd get the working out of the way. And, of course, the mid-70s was another recession. That was the first recession I experienced. So I was very lucky. The father of a girlfriend I had at the time managed to convince an architect that he was doing to take me in as an intern for a short period. So I went and worked for an old firm called EAMTM Scott over here in North Sydney for three months. And when I left, they paid me the princely sum of $300. $300. Wow. <laughs> but uh, the only reason I left was because Jerry Nettleton had rung Peter McCallum, who he was on the practice committee with mm. back in the days when the institute was based in McLaren Street at North Sydney. And Jerry offered me a job at $50 a week. So I spent the next four months with Nettleton Tribe in North Sydney in 1977. Right. And then got on a plane, went to Europe for a year and a half and was fortunate to find a small practice up in the city there that gave me the opportunity to work for about seven months towards the end of that period. And what country was that in? That that was in the UK. Yes, okay. You know, I did the typical thing, you know, bought the van at Australia House and and tripped around Europe, bumped into uni mates here, there and everywhere, but came to understand a lot about what classical architecture was. I saw firsthand a lot of the Baroque buildings that Harry would talk about in the following years when I came to know him, that wonderful counterpoint of curve, which you see in a lot of his work when he Mm -hmm. does draw curves. And again, all the classic buildings of Europe, Corb's work in Marseille and uh, Ronchamp, places like that, which took you from the classic to the modern and really did provide some real inspiration. And as outside of the inspiration, did it impact what you did going forward in terms of design? In the year before I went, we'd had a design tutor called Faco Bowman, who'd just come off the High Court and National Gallery with Cole Madigan. Faco had gone out on his own, was doing a number of different things, so tutoring was part of his survival test in those days in the recession. And um, he was a very formative influence because he was a very good and capable designer, but a classic Dutchman too, mm-hmm. a humanist at heart. And, uh, you know, we were there gushing with enthusiasm and wanting to be inspired even more. Mm-hmm. And one day he took us aside and he said, listen, guys, you've got to just understand the reason I'm an architect is because it provides a means for my family to live. And he said, that's why I do what I do. And that's why I'm tutoring at the moment because there's not enough architectural work around. Right. And so that was probably a more profound influence than all the inspiration. And then mm. the thing I did see in Europe, I think that one has stayed with me forever. And mm. I think building sustainable architectural practice has been a passion of mine over a long period of time. There is architectural excellence. There's always an aspiration for excellence. And then there's the importance of building a practice which is part of the community experience and the provision of it as an employer, a commitment to the quality of what you do, always aspiring to do better. Like we can't all be ward winners all the time, you Mm. know. So that to me was a very important element that stayed in the background, even at times which led to real consideration of compromise and having to real balance what we wanted to achieve. So that took me down a pathway of always wanting to understand the client's breadth 
Yes. And to, to understand how we could continue to work for that client, particularly commercial clients, yeah. and to understand how we can continue to build a better product for them. So maybe it was a cop-out, but that was the road I took. Okay. And you're obviously passionate about sustainability and, and impact. The first question I want to ask you is, what have you noticed has changed over the last couple of decades? I think like a lot of things in life now, design in particular was subjective. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it considered the objects of the brief, but in understanding exactly what it did, it was a matter of observation and then being convinced by the reality that occurred afterwards. It wasn't measured accurately. And today we live in a world of measurement and verification. And I think that's the biggest change. We now go down the road of producing empirical evidence that the design work that's being pursued can be proven to be effective. And I think all the energy measurement we do, all the testing of materials and the real provision of good empirical evidence as to the design and performance of a building has been the most profound change so that the users can have confidence that what was promised has been delivered. As an architect, is that validating for yourself, knowing that that was your intention to start? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think proving up your intuitive response is always Mm. validation. Mm. Um, But it's not critical if your intuition took you there without even having to do the validation. Mm. Um, We tolerate the validation in order to gain guarantee and then we're happy to stand behind it. And I think that's part of, you know, even going back to Harry's statement of, let people run into it and they, maybe they'll discover what it is to have a beautiful building. Yes. Or they'll look at the building and ask the question, why is that, why do I think that is better to look at than the opposite? That's not an easy thing for everybody to interpret. So the validation can be provided. Yes. It can build confidence in the community. And Michael, what do you see the role that architects play in the climate and in what's happening going forward now? Where do you see architects there? Well, I think we have to continue to pursue less use of natural resources wherever we can. You know, I think if you ask me why I like bricks, the bricks are recyclable building element that's never able to not be reused. Mm-hmm. It can probably muddle myself into a double negative there, but the reality is that bricks are an extraordinary material. It's a natural material with its own honesty and simplicity. And when that building's life is over, the brick's life is not over can be regenerated and recommitted to another purpose. So that's a simple description. But I think the the role of energy management, ensuring that we best use the materials that we have and the systems we have to minimise the demand for energy on buildings, you know, the solar movement. We all wait for the day when battery technology is at the right level to make it affordable to everybody. Mm. But that's going to test how we use our overall power grid too because it seems to be hard to promote solar energy and then to be told that the delivery of your power back to the grid's been switched off. That's right. If we now visit the project, could you tell us a little bit about how it came about? Obviously, you've been passionate about vegetables <laughs> ever since. It was at your grandmother. Yeah, my grandmother. She was, she was came to Australia in the late end of the 19th century. And I think it might have been an arranged marriage because my grandfather was a Welsh tailor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was 20 years older and they had only one son, my father, and he was born in 1920. So it's one of those funny things, isn't it? I think she might have come to Australia ahead of him and then he got heard of this potential relationship that was available to him. He was getting towards the time when a family was no longer going to be an opportunity. 
And Wales was a very poor country in those mm. days. So um, They were both from Wales. No, she oh. was from England. Okay. Anyway, the long and the short of that is she had a lovely vegetable garden. And I think it was one of those things growing up and having fresh vegetables come straight out of your backyard and onto the kitchen table just had something wonderful about it. Mm. And so, you know, as soon as we had kids, the first thing I did was put a little vegetable garden in the backyard. And everybody talks about the passion and the romance of a kitchen garden. Yes. And I think that's always been in my blood. Yes, and I remember my own grandfather, he would always have cherry tomatoes. Mm. What are the main vegetables that you grow? Well, it's different summer and winter and and the microclimate in the Southern Highlands is significantly different to humid Sydney. So Mm. you can grow coriander quite well in the Southern Highlands. If you plant a coriander out your backyard, it'll be in seed within half an hour. That's right, yes, yes, that's very true. Yeah, and we're adapting to that. I think fruiting vegetables in summer, rooting vegetables in winter and green leaves and all the various things. But discovering how to grow berries is beautiful. Um, I've never grown raspberries before and we planted five canes a year and a half ago and those five canes must have turned into 500 canes the second planting. Well, you don't plant, you just cut them to the ground at the end of the season Yes, and then they regrow. It's just extraordinary. And I bet they taste amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just to give us some scale here, the vegetable garden is how large? So it's uh, 110 square metres of surface garden area in a walled garden of 14 metres by 17 metres. And just in terms of the design itself, you used one of, I guess, our most popular embellishments with brick, which is the hit and miss wall. Yeah. 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 Maybe just could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the purpose of building a wall garden is to just try and create a warmer microclimate. Yep. So really effectively the principle was just to try and increase the summer growing season more than anything. The lesson I've learned in that is don't plant too early. Okay. Because down there you can still get a late frost in late September if you're unlucky. So thinking you can plant summer crops at you know late August, early September, forget it. Okay. It's late October, early November. But the microclimate works, you know. We recently had my daughter's wedding in the vegetable garden, which was a lot of fun. Beautiful. Just because it had a majesty about it and full of new life and summer vegetables, the essence of how you can live and bring a family up in the future. But having said that, why did I build it like it is? I thought this is where it could fit. This is as big as I could make it in that space. Um, Did I really have a long-term plan about what it was to do? Not really. I worked closely with all the trades and just coming to decisions about how we would build it. And we built it, not only did we we use PGA Seconds to build it with, which was a great discovery. (laughs) It was the bricklayers, no, it was the builder's suggestion. I used a local builder from the south coast, uh, from down in Gerringong, Robert Mays, and he's a shipwright by trade originally, and so a very intuitive builder. And as we went along, we just would look at the various elements of what we were doing. You know, we had the land filled about two metres from south to north. Mm. And so we had a, a metre of cut and a metre of fill. So retaining walls both sides and, and then balancing the, the earth platform in between. He brought up a bricklayer from the south coast who was just so excited, so passionate about what he's doing. I said, I think I want to do this. What do you think? And he would just commit. Wow. Like when we got to the capping, I said, these walls need to be capped. I said, here's a couple of soldier course options to have a thing of snap headers and soldier courses. And he said, let's do a couple of tests. I've got a little thing I'd like you to see. Yep. And he came up with the dragon too. I was going to say, it's such a lot of detail. It looks yeah. beautiful yeah, as well, but some people might not notice that. 
No. Well, mm. you notice it when you're there. Mm. I mean, you do run into it a little bit because you don't see it till you get close to mm. it. And then just putting the capital caps on the two sort of entranceways, east and west, was the other thing. And then brick beds, above ground beds to keep the rabbits out was another little technique. The plumber said, I said, we're going to have to irrigate this. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we going to do? He said, we'll just put four towers and make it natural rainfall from the corners. So we saved a fortune on the irrigation, which was a blessing. Yes. And, and a little bit of power to run things down there. So Great idea. Not very complicated. Just a question, like you've obviously got some sort of posts around it. Is that mm. so it can be netted? Yeah, yep. we built those in. So mm-hmm. they're 75 by 70 RHSs that go right down to the footings, fixed down into the ground and incredibly stable. So if we do need to net it, we yeah. could. Somebody said, could you put a roof over it? I said, yep, without any trouble, but mm. I don't think we need to. No. We netted an orchard just nearby, planted 21 mixed fruit trees in there and we did net that because it became obvious the birds were going to be a big issue. Yes, and the birds do have a little bit of impact on the garden, but not so much. It's easy to just net a bed of tomatoes or a bed of corn if you yes. need to. But certainly haven't had to net corn, which surprised me. I thought the birds yeah. would attack that, but uh, the, even the berries and the strawberries need a bit of netting. Okay. But the raspberries, no trouble at all. Wow. I was just going to ask how long the construction of this took. Probably about three months from three. start to finish. Okay. Yeah. 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 And all using seconds bricks. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a great story. Yeah, the house was, we bought this house probably eight years ago and there were tenants in at the time and we only bought it because it had this magnificent view all the way to Mount Gibraltar and Barrel. So I thought that's a view I could capitalise. You can live in Sydney and you can make a buck out of it at the end of the day. But the house needed a mountain of work, about 450 square metres of existing building, okay. um, which is a lot, and it had been in built in two stages. The first in the 60s by a local builder, and the second it had been extended by a Sydney engineer who engaged Ron Gilling of Joslin and Gilling. Oh, okay, yes. And Ron, in his retirement, hung up a shingle in barrel, and he must have known this engineer from Sydney, and he did the extension. So the character of the house changed significantly went from being a little four-bedroom, two-storey thing into a quite an unusual, sleek, semi-modernist type of place but that didn't connect to the ground. I think the engineer ran out of money. He built a dodgy little small balcony off one end of the house and the rest of it was all built in and enclosed. You couldn't see the front door. Doing the extension, they created two front doors, two garages, two power systems in the house, duplication from almost from beginning to end. Oh. So we had a lot to unwind and a lot to undo, but mm-hmm. in doing it, the house had been built out of barrel brick, very similar to your seconds. So we built a number of, in framing the house and bringing it down to the ground, we created horizontal lines out of galvanised steel and we built in a number of hit and miss panels into that framework that sits around the existing house. So we sort of layered it to allow it to come to the ground and to bring the inside to the outside and connect. So that was that was in the back of my mind and when the vegetable garden came along, we said hit and miss brickwork. Okay. <laughs> And we were lucky to find a product that can do the job well. <laughs> Michael, any advice to architects starting out today? I think in today's world, there's a real mixture of opportunity. You know, I've worked in the same practice for nearly 45 years now. And that the opportunity to engage young architects, we've always encouraged student architects to come in and do paid internships with us all the time. We would not ask an intern to work for nothing anymore. I had Mm. that experience myself. (laughs) Got my $300 bonus at the end. 
So find a practice that welcomes you, wants to engage with young people and be present in that practice. You know, the last two years, I think a lot of students have either not been able to work or have had to work for the practice at home. I met a new employee in our practice at Christmas who'd been with us since August and she'd never been to the office, Mm. you know. So I think the osmotic experience of being in the studio is a powerful tool to your learning and professional development. So... If you find somebody who you respect and trust, be with them whenever you can. Just even ask, can I come and sit in on that meeting because I'd really just like to hear what's going on. You'll never get a no. Mm. So, yeah, we built the practice. So we're based on the east coast of Australia now in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. And over time it's just grown and grown and grown. Mm. So it's been a great experience. And, and as I start to step backwards out of the practice, I'm very confident of the young men who've come in, you know, our new managing director, Rod Moyle, who's based in Brisbane, mm. the studio I opened for the company back in 1987, has been with us just under, he'd been 19 years in the practice when he took over as managing director at the age of 44. Right. So that's the story. Of course, young architects will want to be continue to grow. Mm. So if you're not getting growth opportunities, you need to move or have the conversation about the aspirations you have for yourself and your own career. And don't be shy about that because ambition gains respect as well. That's great advice and I couldn't agree with you more about presence and just learning and I think it's one of, whilst I think work flexibility is important, Mm. when you're young that's when your learning is absorbed and we certainly have that philosophy here Um, and everyone wanted to come back as soon as they could after COVID. So, yeah, we've been in a different situation. Could I just add one little thing to that? Mm. that Because I think work flexibility is important and I think my observation over the last 20 years as to how important that has to be for the women in our profession or anybody in our profession who wants to have a family and share that equally with their partner, mm. that demands that we have to respect that priority in life. You mm. know, Family must come first. If you find yourself in a work situation where your family needs are not being understood by the practice and you're being stretched beyond it, that's not the right situation. Mm. You need to respect that family must take precedence at times And the flexibility and the opportunity that's given to those who choose to have family over the last two years has been a revelation, Mm. particularly in architecture, I think, where not that we didn't trust our employees before, but the revelation that they can work equally as well. I have one assistant that I've spent the last 12 months working with has just gone home to Portugal to have her second child, which is due in August. But she will start work again next Monday with me on a couple of projects here in Sydney. She'll do the night shift. Yeah. Isn't that fabulous? Fantastic. Yes. No, I, again, agree with everything you're saying. Now, Michael, we're just going to sort of some rapid fire questions. Mm. Um, any answers are acceptable. We've had a variety. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? A newspaper. Handwriting or typing? Handwriting. I can't use cat <laughs> and I don't want to learn. <laughs> For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? I'd use an outline. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? I'm an audio book person. What's important to you, style or substance? I probably blur the two into integrity. I like that one. We haven't had that answer before. Coffee or tea? Uh, coffee. TV shows or movies? I'm more a movie man. Antique or brand new? There are some things old which are to be treasured, but something beautifully designed and brand new is spectacular. Call or text? Yeah, I was always a caller, but I find the efficiency of text and the clarity and the record of it a really valuable tool, particularly in business. You know, we discovered that 
email took us away from verbal verification mm. back to written verification. So our documentary records of what client instruction and our responses can now be recorded on a number of different media, whether mm. it's the written word or the email or the text. And I think those have become incredibly valuable. It's been another layer of productivity that we didn't have for a period. You know, I watched the real progression and advent of CAD and 3D documentation through the 90s increase our productivity prolifically. And I think in the last five years, as short a period as that, that email and text has suddenly increased our productivity again. So you and I sit in meetings and we'll watch our clients and our fellow consultants sitting around doing a bit of this at the same time. So they're mm. doing two or three jobs at the same time. So the boys are getting better at multitasking. <laughs> well, I think I think there's research to show that text has such a higher response rate, particularly for fast answers, yeah. which in building is often required. Yeah, I think what did they used to say you had to be able, affable, and accessible to be a successful architect. And the accessibility is often the most regular complaint against mm. architects. Over the years, I've spent a fair bit of time on practice committees with the Institute of Architects, and I'm still a senior counsellor. So the senior counsellors are free service with the Institute who respond to client and public needs. Yes. And, and our fellow architects too. So if there's a question, they want some advice, they want some verification. It's just great to do to have a conversation with a, a member of your profession or, or a member of the public and to help them take that next step on the road. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, oh, they haven't called me back or they haven't finished those minutes or they haven't responded to this correspondence. And in a text world, you can solve all that in an instant. That's right. Travel back in time or into the future? I'd like to go back. Exterior or interior? If you can't design the inside, you can't finish the outside. <laughs> and if you get the outside wrong you know, from the outset, then the inside will never quite fit. Right. Video games or board games? Oh, video games. Form or function? You know, I just love to blur the two mm. because I, one doesn't follow the other, mm. but you have to formulate a full response that demands something of both. And final question, complex or simple with relation to design? Well, simplicity is the hardest thing to achieve. You know, the clearest and simplest and most perfect detail will take a huge amount of work. And to create anything in the built environment that's perfect is almost impossible. So simplicity has to be your target at the end of the day. Michael, it's been absolutely my pleasure speaking with you today and some really fabulous advice and insights that you've given us. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to be here. Thanks, Elizabeth. I've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.